Greetings, Internet. I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, I'll be reviewing Blake Lively's turn at action thriller with the rhythm section, as well as the new sort of ethereal horror movie Gretel and Hansel, based on the fairy tale of the same name. Plus, a Netflix and chat about some Disney movies. So let's get started. So I have no idea about this really going in. I know that this got kind of the most trailer play for me, whereas Gretel and Hansel didn't really get much of anything except uh, a uh, stand in my local theater. Um, this is apparently based on a novel, and the novelist wrote the screenplay as well, which usually may, it, it, get, it depends, um, you know, that... Having the novelist write the screenplay isn't going to make it good, but at least it shows that there's that continuity between the book and the adaptation. But yeah, the idea is that we have um, a woman played by Blake Lively who is trying her best to do a uh, British accent because she's from London and not exactly nailing it, but... uh, yeah, it's but at, after there's a point where, uh, like at the right at the beginning of the movie, uh, it, uh, she her family all dies in a plane crash, and we cut to her a couple years later, I think, and she has now become a heroin addicted, um, like prostitute, Spe- like specifically, I think, like she's either working in a crack den. Or brothel, I can't tell which, but that's kind of where she's at. Um, trying to get a read on the novel. Let's try Goodreads. Uh, but yeah, Blake Lively uh, is then approached by this journalist who says, "Oh, uh, I can help you find the." Because it turns out, oh, your your parents weren't killed. They were. Um, your parents were killed. You know, the, the plane crash wasn't an accident. It's a cover up, and I'm trying to figure out who did it. And I have all this information. And then Blake Lively decides, "Thank you for showing me this. I'm gonna go kill that guy, even though I, you know, even though I have no idea what I'm doing." And that's that's kind of a, a theme present throughout. The movie is that Blake Lively just has no idea what she's doing, and unfortunately, it like it it, it it's brought up time and again that oh yeah she just has absolutely not a clue what she's doing, and she uh, ends up getting more, you know more people killed without giving too much away. Uh, but basically, she gets people more people killed by being you know, terrible at what she's doing than she does a, than she does at actually trying to kill the people responsible for her parents' death. It's trying to be this whole, um, uh, what you call it, like, a ah, uh, there's stuff, there's all kinds of stuff like this, um, but, you know, the idea that the movie is, um, uh, th- this person who suffers uh, this tragic event and then all of a sudden they train super hard to become a killer badass assassin there's plenty of stuff like that like peppermint tried the same thing 
And and I think what the ultimate problem comes down to is we've consistently seen this story told time and again. And the, the fact of the matter is, it's all, it, it always comes down to somebody of European... I think American Assassin tried this as well, where it's this American white, you know, Eurocentric uh, person uh, is, you know, uh, traumatized, has some traumatic event, their family gets killed by terrorists, normally um, Arabic terrorists and so they have to go on a vendetta of killing you know killing brown people to right the wrong that their parents were murdered and and it's just like "Mm, do we really need this like this was big post 9-11 this was a big you know it was all cool to just like yay arabs were the new terror arabs were the new bad guys in action movies again great perfect now we got a new villain to to marginalize and you know kill on mass it's starting to turn back into mexicans with the cartels like oh these are not that the not that the people that they're killing aren't terrible but the fact of the matter is it's very consistently the ones that hollywood seems okay with killing like there are plenty of terrible you know white gang leaders there's russians there's um all sort, you know, there's mafias, there's all sorts of various types of gang activity and violence and just the terrible people that you could ter- ter- make your villains. But it's always the it's always easiest for Hollywood to go to the cartels and um, uh, Islamic ex- extremists. And I feel like it's just them just falling back on the fact that, oh, wh- white America was perfectly cool with having these brown people die because they're, quote unquote, the bad guys. And it's... Not to mention the fact that all of that uh, excludes the context for why these, you know, sorts of organizations even pop up in the first place, which in the case of a lot of Arab extremists is that there's a lot of (laughs) colonialist grade intervention in their countries. So, yeah, gee, I wonder why they don't, you know, they don't tend to like us. Uh, Yeah, so it's, um, I'm looking at this, this book was released how long ago 2011 this took nine years i mean my first published 1999 okay so this was like right before 9-11 this came out um and i don't know if uh it's specifically arabic terrorists in the book uh does not say like who the people who caused the thing was in the book, they may or may not have been uh, tied to Islamic extremism, or that may have been an invention for the movie. But apparently, this is a whole series, and like uh, the character fall. There's a love thing with um, someone named Frank White. I, was that Sterling K. Brown? I think that was Sterling K. Brown in the movie. Um. No, there isn't a Frank White, so I don't know what's going on then. Uh, this isn't very much for having the author write the screenplay. Not a lot of it has seemed to carried over, but yeah, um, it it uh it didn't make me want to go read the book. I'll say that much. Um, yeah, the idea that it fe- it feels like those post 9-11 sort of movies where it was so gung-ho against taking out the terrorists 
and what we've come and you know 20 years not even 20 almost 20 19 years later almost we've come to sort of realize that we were sold that bill of goods without it being the truth and so having Blake Lively going around and and to the movie's defense it isn't just you know uh Arabic people but that's the main that's the main uh source of villainy in the movie it's just it just doesn't not to mention the fact that this movie itself is just not very good. It's not very good action. It's not very compelling uh, drama. Blake Lively herself is kind of saddled with this role that she's not very good in, and it's not very good in and of itself. So I don't know who you would get to play this role that would make it good. I think what it just comes down to is the people making this weren't exactly making a good movie. And I don't know if you could make a good movie out of this just because it is just another in the long line of white assassins going against brown villains again. Like, it's just, this has become a cliche at this point. And I just, nothing about this. It, it definitely wants to try and evoke the idea of the Bourne identity in the Bourne series. But it's just not that good, and the writing is not that good. In fact, and the fact of the matter is, if it's the screen, if it's the screenwriter is the novelist, then it definitely doesn't want to make me go read that book. Because if he's this is how he writes for the screen, is he writing any better for the page? But yeah, it's it ultimately is just a very forgettable January release. We ended January on a fairly down note in terms of like the biggest release, and uh, apparently it's already been declared a box office bomb. Uh, whoa, 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 wait. When did this happen? Apparently, according to Wiki, it's having the worst wide opening weekend of all time already. But didn't we just have that with Doolittle? Like, wait, hold on. Okay, um, I'll, I'll look this up during the break, um, in between recording, recording segments. Suffice to say that you don't need to see the Rizzling section. It's just not very good. You could do, you're better off just watching, like, some of the Bourne movies, and, or, um... Or that one with Jodie Foster uh, that I mentioned the last time. Yeah, it's you don't need to watch this. This is your power. To see what is hidden and to take it. <laughs> we were given the same gift, the same magic. Brother! Brother! What did you do with him? All that is left is to make him. <sighs> Delicious. So something I didn't know about this movie coming out was the fact that it was um, directed by the son of the late um, Anthony Perkins, best known for uh, playing... Um, Norman Bates in Psycho, and who's had a, a phenomenal career both as an actor and as a director. Uh, he went on to have a great career as well. But I did not know Osgood Perkins. What I mean it makes sense, Perkins. But I mean, you never think about that being him being the son of um, that guy because I mean, so many times. Like I didn't know that. Um, who was it that I just learned was? Uh, oh, um, the uh, one daughter the one uh the daughter of diana ross is the i think wife on blackish she's also on mixedish uh she was just in a bed mountain dew commercial with uh, brian cranston where they recreated the shining 
I know I knew I'd see her in places, and then I realized, oh, she's from Blackish and Mixedish and all that, and uh, apparently she's also the daughter of Diana Ross, which I did not, which I had no idea, because those kinds of things you don't really think about, uh, especially if some actors or some you know children of famous people will go by different names, so that you don't like you wouldn't know that uh, Billy Lord is the daughter of Carrie Fisher, who herself is the daughter of. What's her name? Uh, um, the, she lived... Je Debbie Reynolds. Uh, I knew... I was like, D. Begins with a D. It's a D. It's a duh. It's a duh. It's a duh. Um, yeah, Debbie Reynolds. Uh, so, yeah, you wouldn't know that Carrie Fisher is the daughter of Debbie Reynolds, and then Billy Lord is Carrie Fisher's daughter, but, yeah, anyway. Point is, um, yeah, Osgood Perkins directed this, it's a much more wanting, semi-realistic. It's very much inspired by movies like The the Witch or The The Vitch, uh, the double V Vitch. Um, and uh, what was the other one? Somebody, Cargirl uh, on Twitter. Uh, see Robert Cargirl, I think, shared a bunch of um, movies that are very much in the same tone. Uh, Hereditary was another one that had this sort of style. Very dark, um, gothic very gothic uh, style to it. Um, and it's the... Um, it's a... Yeah, it's... Uh, it's a very interesting sort of um, movie in that regard. It's, it, I mean, the, the thing I'm curious about is how it's getting very good reviews. Not that um, it's a bad movie, but... I don't know. I, I, to me, it's... My biggest thing was... It's overly narrated. Like, if this movie had taken out all of... Um, what's her name's uh, narration? Uh, the girl from... Uh, it. The star of this. Let me pull her up. Gretel and Hansel. Goes by Oz Perkins. Uh... Sophia Lillis. Uh, there are points where they're, and it's sporadic. It's never, it's never consistent. It's always sporadic when she narrates. But if she had just shut up and let the movie speak for itself, this would have been even better. Like, I think the pro, and that may not, and I'm, you know, that's not on her, obviously, that she doesn't make those decisions. But I'm wondering if this is from. <laughs> I had, I almost laughed during the theater because whenever the, because. Now that MGM's back, Orion Pictures is back with them. And Orion Pictures also released one of my my favorite live-action movie of all time, uh, UHF. I say favorite live-action because Bambi is my favorite movie. But my favorite live-action movie is UHF. And during the... I love it so much, I've seen the um, Weird, Weird Al and Jay Roach... Jay Roach? Jay... Not Jay Roach. Jay Roach is the guy who directed Sasha Baron Cohen. Um, who's the J? J Levy. J Levy. Um, now you can watch it free on IMDb TV with ads. Uh, interesting. Anyway, um, J yeah, J Levy and Weird Al did uh, the commentary for it. They they kind of messed it up during the um Blu-ray transition. Uh, I don't know if they just couldn't transfer over what happened, but basically there's a fun bit in the um, 
DVD commentary where Weird Al just steps up in front of the screen and like and like inter- and like interacting with the movie at one point and then it's like he tell he tells uh he tells Jace like I gotta get some donuts you want anything and you see him get up and walk out <laughs> oh it's beautiful fourth wall breaking one of the best commentaries by far um but at the beginning of because UHF was released by Orion Pictures. One of the, the movie opens with Weird Al singing, do do do, Orion, Orion is bankrupt now. And every time the Orion picture, now that the Orion Pictures logo is back, same logo, same exact, they haven't updated the logo at all. It's the exact same logo it was during the 80s. So it's the exact same logo that appears in front of UHF. So while I'm sitting there watching this brand new movie in 2020, uh, I'm seeing the Orion logo and I'm thinking to myself, Orion, Orion is bankrupt now. <laughs> uh, but um, but yeah, that's an interesting. I'm kind of, I kind of hope they stick around long enough to get a new logo, if nothing else. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's um, it's it's interesting new take. It's the same story uh, with Hansel and Gretel, only they change it from a um, like a candy coated cake dessert covered house to just a uh, a witch who can gen- constantly generate um sustenance food sweets everything to keep the kids enticed they they uh they do change it up a bit they're making it more by you know by the obviously switched names it's more about Gretel than Hansel they've made Gretel older and they've made it kind of anachronistic which is my big takeaway is that Gretel feels like she was written for the modern day which doesn't help because Sophia Lilla speaks in her normal American accent and everyone else is speaking with a British accent, which kind of throws me off too. Um, but she's, I don't know, I guess I don't know enough about, um, not feminist history, but like, would the kinds of things that we would see from modern day women be seen prior to various feminist movements is what I'm guessing. Like, I know we you get things like Beatrice and um, Shakespeare, but I don't know how much of that was common, and so I don't know how much of a girl who would recognize like, you know, the fact that the employer she's interviewing for is clearly a pet, uh, predator and is talk asking her about her virginity, and it's like this thing is something that hits home to women for sure. It's good, but is it, but it kind of makes the movie feel anachronistic because it's like that's something that you would think about now. Is it something that a girl at that a at that era would think about? Because this is I don't know. I once again I don't know enough about uh, history to know what ideas are anachronistic for each time. So I don't want to assume because this could very easily be uh, within its time period, and it just didn't play off as well because um, the writing definitely feels a bit stilted. And uh, I think. Uh, uh, Oz Perkins isn't a bad director, but he's very, very wooden. He he, he gets his the performances out of this movie are very wooden, and I don't want to lay that on him. But unfortunately, the director is the ultimate, um, you know, line between good acting and bad acting because good actors can give bad performances when they have bad directors. But it just yeah, it does. It definitely feels a bit wonky and. Um, may or may not be anachronistic 
but the deliveries are all kind of like even the like uh, when Gretel and Hansel are talking, they don't feel like brother and sister so much at times. A lot of times they just feel like, hello, I am reading my lines. These are the lines at which I am saying to you, sister. Hello, sister. We I am reading my lines to you, sister. Like it doesn't feel natural. And he may that may have been what he intended, because that could have very easily been what he intended, because you can see that a lot in uh, some horror movies like this, where they're very high horror. They're uh, kind of like there's high fantasy uh, and high sci-fi. This is kind of high horror, where it's very, you know, it's not, not very um, down-in-the-dirt realistic. It's much more like lofty it's it's got more artistic ambitions art that's not full-on art horror like you would see in uh, midsummer or hereditary even it's definitely but it's definitely going for that style and i think that's why a lot of people are digging it and good because hey more more horror that's at least trying is good thing that's a good thing um i guess my concern is that I would like it to still, I would rather just watch something, like, I'm not going to go back and see it again unless I think it's really good. And the high-mindedness of this, it's it's fun to think about and, like, p- pick apart. It's fun to, like, appreciate it as, like, an art, as, like, as, like, a piece of art. But it's not something that I, that viscerally worked for me. And that also may just be because it's more feminist. It's much more catering to, because um, that's the whole thing. The story is about Gretel becoming an adult essentially uh there's there's a specific piece that ties into her going through starting puberty so i mean yeah this is what we're dealing with here they were dealing with very high-minded ideas of like you know the witch is a symbol for adult womanhood and oh she is she stands up against the patriarchal system but she's also you know a kill you know a murderer so like it's very gray and it's very you know nebulous it's very it's very artistic in that sense and i think that's good stuff like that is good it just the ending kind of fell flat for me um the story bits uh uh don't really work as well i think it could have been you know finer you know tuned you know you know polished a little bit more um there's a there's an interesting bit where there's like this like really sexy tattooed up goth chick and like that was like as soon as I saw her I'm like hello you've got my interest <laughs> uh somebody from the suicide what is it suicide girls <laughs> one of them came up <laughs> in, in the film but yeah it's it's a really cool movie I'll give it that you know I even though I wasn't as into it as a lot of other people are it's a really cool movie and I respect it a lot it's just I think it could have been even better. You know, and what really would have made it work is I don't know if it was a producer who decided this, or if it was uh, Oz Perkins who decided to do it. But whoever decided to have uh, Sophia Lillis narrate all over the movie to explain what's going on, unnecessary, wholly unnecessary. Every time they do that, it just points out the fact that I could see it in front of my eyes. It's like when uh, Peppa Pig has the narrator explain what somebody just said. And Mommy just told George to not to watch his ice lolly. And no, no, Ma- George's lolly fell on the ground. <laughs> oh, God. Just shut up. Shut up for, for once. Just let us enjoy the thing. You don't need to be explaining it to us. Uh, but yeah, it's... Um, and that may... Like, it may have been... 
different if it was uh, produced by A24 or Neon. Who knows? But hey, if they were going to get more stuff like this out of Orion, let's keep Orion around. Let's see what they can do. Let's see what they got in store for us. I'm down for more cool stuff like this. So yeah, Gretel and Hansel if it's my, is my pick of the week. Uh, just because it's of the two, it's the better. But yeah, it's a really interesting high horror. So if you're into that sort of thing, go for it. Salutations, ladies and gentlemen. It's the Popcorn Junkie here for a little Netflix and chat. Alright. So, with the Oscars a week away and a bunch more to catch up on before it, what did I do? I watched a bunch of animated movies on Disney+. Plus. I am great at time management. But yeah, I watched a whole bunch of stuff on Disney Plus over the week, and a couple of it, one, twice um, returning to movies I had seen before, one watching a one I had missed entirely. Uh, so the ones I had seen before were first up, Home on the Range, mainly because the director was dunking, the uh, tweet of the director dunking on Doug Walker came back around, I'm like, I should rewatch that, I should check it out again. And yeah, Home on the Range is way better than people give it credit for, it is... You know, not it is not perfect, but it's got that kind of great angular '70s era style to its animation, like the kind of stuff that you would see in um, the post Walt years, uh, leading up to the '80s. It's got that kind of style to it. Um, uh, the, the biggest thing is that Roseanne is kind of may have been not been the best choice for. Uh, I mean, she she gets the brashness down, but we didn't need to hear Roseanne talking a whole lot, and not to mention the fact that her punchlines aren't as funny. Um, the humor is a really immature, actually. Like, there's a bunch of stuff about how, you know, bull, all the bulls trying to hit on, uh, the three cows and, um, you know, Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character feels like a 10-year-old who just saw a kung fu movie for the first time. It's just, yeah, the humor is a bit on the childish side, um, uh, a lot of points, and, it's, I will, but at the same point, like, the villain is a cool idea. Like, he rides around on a buffalo, uh, a bison, specifically, because buffalo is, yeah, anyway. He rides around on a bison. He has this cool villain song that he, that kind of peaks his coolness, unfortunately. <laughs> He's never really that cool again after the villain song. But, yeah, uh, and for, even though he's featured in the opening, the the one-legged rabbit, Lucky Jack, uh, he should have been in the whole movie. I feel like he was, uh, once he entered into the movie, it got even better. It felt more like a classic Disney movie. And um, it's got an interesting little villain twist towards the end that uh, is, is an interesting sort of thing that you don't really see coming. It's, yeah, it's a really solid, uh, fa- you know, family uh, Western movie. And uh, it's not perfect, but it's way better than people give it credit for. I'll give it that. Um, the other thing I watched, uh, uh, again, was Fantasia. And this was because, I'm not going to lie, I've been really depressed. Um, there's a bunch of stuff going on in my personal life that I can't really discuss. Um, but it's been weighing on me a lot. I've mentioned about the unemployment stuff, um, I think, at some at, at one point. But suffice to say that my personal life isn't very good at this at, at this point in time, and I was in a ba- I was in a bunch of bad places. I wasn't getting anything done, and um, so uh, the other night I was feeling really depressed and needed to pick me up. So I rewatched Fantasia. So I um, turned on Disney Plus. I went to look for some stuff. 
and I rewatched Fantasia because even the, Bambi would is my usual go to, but I wanted to rewatch Fantasia uh, because I hadn't seen it in a long while, and it's yeah, it still holds up for the most part. It's a it's a it's a crazy unique concept. The idea that Walt for his third movie. Uh, decided, I'm going to have a traveling orchestra show, you know, a traveling concert go from theater to theater. It was way beyond its time, and it's a, it's a, and it's got great choices. Uh, you know, starting with Takata and Fugue, it's a great lineup. You go from Takata and Fugue, this Baroque um, piece, to uh, that's very, you know, wakes you up, and then you go to the Tchaikovsky Ballet, um, Nutcracker Ballet Suite. That has a bunch of those pieces, and that's and that's really soothing and calming. And then you cut to Rite of Spring, and no, then you go to um to uh, Sorcerer's Apprentice, which is more mysterious, draws you in, and then and then you go to Rite of Spring, which is bombastic and big and loud, and then um and unnerving, and then that's that's the halfway point. And then you come back, and it's um the uh then it's Beethoven's Pastoral uh, Symphony, I think number six. Uh, which is nice and smooth and swaying and epic and, you know, invokes the countryside. Um, you, you follow that up with uh, the Dance of the Hours, which is nice and cool and de 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 really fast-paced and fun. You end it with a dual piece of Night on Bald Mountain, which is hellish and fiery and big, to ending softly on, Ave, on uh, Schubert's Ave Maria. And it's a wonderfully, like, masterfully, not masterfully, but, like, very well-thought-out concert piece. Like, if you've had a local orchestra um, have this as their setup for the pieces of the night, it would seem kind of all over the place, but as you as one piece plays into the next, it all makes sense. It all plays well. It's just, I think, an issue with uh, Fantasia 2000. It's not as well-thought-out, uh, from what I'm remembering. But... Yeah, this movie is really well thought out, and not to mention the fact the eclectic animation style. I could gush on and on about Fantasia, like the animation styles from each piece to the next. They're all different, and um, but then my personal segments are uh, my personal favorites are Rite of Spring, because I'm a dorky dinosaur boy. I love me some dinos, and the Night on Bald Mountain because. I'm a, I'm a goth with who doesn't have the uh, the uh, sto- the uh, you know visual uh, expertise to don goth makeup and style. I can't do the goth style, but I'm a goth at heart. And yeah, Not on Bald Mountain's a lot of fun. It's really cool and crazy and very interesting. Like it's there's harpy titties. There's legit harpy titties with nipple in Night on Bald Mountain. Yeah, watch watch Night on Bald Mountain. Se- watch the Night on Bald Mountain segment and. You will, if you pause it at the right point, you will see the harpy titties, <laughs> complete with nipple. The like the centaurettes didn't have nip centaur centaurinas? What? Whatever. Anyway, the female centaurs didn't have nipples, but the harpy's got the nips, <laughs> and it's in a Disney movie, and it's crazy. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's but it's also kind of weird. It's also got these weird weird points where like they leave in a bit where the bells drop. Like you can just edit that out, guys. Um, and then there's the bit where like they're the the, the orchestra is just like you know improving a bunch of stuff and having fun. Um, it's it's a really interesting and really um, you know noteworthy piece. It's like there's nothing else quite like it. And I gotta say that I would love because there's a thing in locally 
uh, here in Ohio, where I think the Cleveland Orchestra does Night at the Movie. You watch a movie, they will play the soundtrack to it. So they did Harry Potter, um, they've done Lord of the Rings, I think they did Star Wars, and I could see a traveling Disney-sponsored show of the original Fantasia, but ongoing Fantasias. Exactly what Walt intended, but now he's working with a specific orchestra. Now you're working with a specific orchestra that trains for part of the year and then tours for the other half of the year doing doing this. And then, you know, part of it is the Disney animation team coming up with these new things for each. And then maybe you do it for like, you tour for like a year and a half. So you train for that first half of the year. You tour for a year and a half. During that time, the next one. And then if you need some more time, you do an old one. You bring back the original Fantasia, or you do the Fantasia 2000 set piece, or you do whatever, blah, 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 blah. and then while they're doing those, while those are going on tour, you do the new one next. And it's like you could have an ongoing series of concert tours with the traveling orchestra, with the animation playing on the screen. Like you could do that now. That would be a great way to entice people to come to go to concerts. It would be a cool thing, and exactly what kind of it, it, kind of in the same spirit that Walt intended. I would I would love to pitch that to Disney and come up with, like, the pieces in mind. Oh, that would be so cool. Um, but, yeah, it's... If nothing else, yeah, go watch the original Fantasia. It, it still holds up for the most part. The last thing I watched, and I watched it for the first time, is The Black Cauldron. I'd heard good... I'd heard things about it. I'd heard... Like, I know Danny uh, Evadan, his favorite movie is The Black Cauldron, or his favorite Disney movie is. And... I watched it, and I think I appreciate it more now. I don't know how much I would have appreciated it as a kid, but being a fan of Don Bluth, that sort of dark, you know, uh, very intense style will probably have hooked me in because uh, I was big into um, Secret of Nim and Land Before Time uh, and American Tale. But uh, I do like the fantasy setting now that I'm like, big into D&D. I think a lot of it feels like that sort of classic fantasy style. And you're also following the hero's journey. You know, I think that the, based on the books, I'm, I'm assuming the books are having that way. Like the Terrence, this uh, foolish farm boy who's got to take care of a clairvoyant pig. It's, it's an interesting sort of impetus for, um, for the, for the, what's it called? Uh, the adventure, the call to adventure is the pig sees the future. And, uh, the Horned King is going to seek her out to try and find the Black Cauldron. Um, it's cool. It's an interesting idea. It's, it's something you don't normally see uh, in fantasy. It's, it's kind of like weird and out there. Um, but uh, I do think that the biggest problem you have is that it's too much. And when you look into the books, the Chronicles of Prydane, which I've been really wanting to get into, are... Um, it's a two. It's the first two books in the series that they're cramming into one movie, and I feel like that was the big issue. And I don't know how the first book in the series plays that you could adapt that straight. But I think trying to compile it into a single story ultimately, you know, takes away a lot of the majesty of it all, and it's it feels very um, um, all over the place. Like you know, it cuts quickly. It everything is done so quickly. Like. Um, we're off on the adventure and all of a sudden the pig's gone. So we got to rescue him from the tower. So you got to rescue him from the castle. And then that's where we meet the princess. And, you know, along the way, this, this, this weird little furry goblin thing, Gurgi shows up and, um, and, uh, it's just, 
it it's just all then all of a sudden the pig just good you know is gone the, the pig's no longer in the story um and then there's this old bard who shows up at one point and he now he's along for the ride um there's a magic sword and then it's uh then 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 there's witches and a fae and frog cleave there's frogs in the cleavage uh, it's yeah. There's, there's a bit in this movie where um the old bard is get who's gotten um who's attracted the uh, one of the witches who's got this ample bosom as well as this plunging V neck and so her sisters or whoever or the other witches are turning the old guy into a frog and she's like no no I'll protect you and then oh no where did he go boingy 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 and it's. It feels very out of place for a Disney movie, I'll say that much. I don't know if it's in the book or not either. That may have been something Disney's like, what if we put the frog in the titties? <laughs> what? What the hell? But, um, yeah, I I think that my biggest problems are, one, the voice acting. The voice acting feels, especially for, like, Taryn and Gurgi and... It's like this weird vocal effect. Sounds master. It's it's like it's like Gollum and his Godzilla gurgling Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. Elongwin feels very underwritten. Uh, I don't know if she's even better, any better in the book series, but it feels like she wants. They want to try and play her off as a as a you know as a as a head a headstrong sort of you know. Uh, great princess character, but they don't really do anything with her either. Uh, it's mostly Taryn who does stuff, and that's kind of uh, that's kind of sad. Uh, and the bard doesn't really do anything either. <laughs> so it's like, why are you here if you don't do anything? So I'm wondering if the um, if the books elaborate more on what they actually do uh, in terms of the party. And I will say, like the animation, you can tell this is cheap era Disney because the animation for this for parts of this, they're, like, shot on green screen. Like, it's this weird thing where it looks like the animation is filmed on green screen, and I don't know how they did it, but it looks weird, and I don't like it. But uh, everything to do with the Horned King, from the fact that he's played by John Hurt to the summoning of the undead, it's all wonderfully dark and gothic, and I love it. That's why I'm really hoping that Disney finally um, brings back... Uh, because they're still sitting on the rights to Chronicles of Prydane as a movie. And I really hope that they manage to get that off the ground. Because even though, like, the the post-Lord of the Rings fantasy stuff isn't really working for them, maybe wait a couple of years. Wait for something, uh, because, because, um, oh, Game of Thrones-style show for Disney+. Plus. Bada boom. There you go. Make it like a, make it like every season is the book, and there you have it. Problem solved. <laughs> I don't know. Um... At any rate, yeah, Black Cauldron is is is, is a new semi favorite of mine from Disney. It's one that I appreciate a lot and wish could be better, but it's not one that I'm gonna revisit a lot either. But yeah, I'm really glad I finally got the chance to watch it because it's it's right the hell up my alley, and I really hope they can do a new thing with it eventually. I felt they could do a new live action uh, um, Last Unicorn too. I feel like there's a, a chance to bring more of the book into the film that uh, a second time, but. That's just me and my brain. <laughs> if you're listening to um, if you listen to the last episode, we finally got the January episode of um, uh, Living in the Stacks out out, and uh, we uh, Melody and I interviewed the author um, of the book we read, and I ended with 
um, uh, who do you think should play your character? Who would you see your characters as played by in a movie? And Melody's like, that's just John. <laughs> he always has to make it about movies. <laughs> I'm sorry, I do. I love movies. And it, yeah, it's... Uh, I'm always thinking about adaptations and whatnot, so yeah. Um, that's why when there was that rumor going around that they're going to do a live-action Bambi, like in the t- in the style of Lion King, I'm like, I thought the same thing as a fan of the book that it's based on. There are there is room for addition. There's a room. There is room for a better ap- adaptation. I don't know that they would do that though. That's my problem. Is that somebody who read the book and was willing to do more of the stuff from the book in the movie? That could be interesting. Uh, but as a turn, but knowing Disney's track record, I don't see that happening. So that's 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 my problem. But yeah, uh, I'm just waiting for the Iger era of Disney to be over so we can get back to something with more creativity in it. Anyway, uh, that's all the reviews for this week. So uh, we'll check in with the box office report. And now the popcorn junkie checks in with this week's box office report. So I did look into it after reading that the rhythm section was considered one of the worst box office bombs of all time. And I'm like, is it though? Is it though? Because like, I'm looking at the numbers here. So far, the biggest box office bomb when adjusted for inflation is Justice League. With $104 million, with at most $104 million dollars. Although uh, Deepwater Horizon also, when adjusted for inflation, lost $119 million, uh, according to their, their, uh, even though those made back their budget, they didn't make back their marketing and whatnot. So those are considered flops based on what the studios are saying. And I don't know whether or not that's to be taken true. Ben-Hur, the 2016 remake, apparently lost $128 million, allegedly, uh, at the high end. Um, Dark Phoenix, uh, rec- was, uh, rumored to have lost on upwards of $122 million. Uh, Fantastic Four from 2015, 108. Pan from 2015 could have lo- is rumored to have lost on the upwards of $162 million. Same with Tomorrowland from 2015. So, like, it's, it's, it's a scale, but, like, 13th Warrior, when adjusted for inflation, lost on the upwards of $198 million. King Arthur Legend of the Sword from 2017 lost on the upwards of $160 million. Mars Needs Moms lost almost a hundred lost on uh, lost an estimated two uh, hundred and sixty-four million dollars. John Carter from 2012 lost uh upwards of two hundred and twenty-three million dollars at the box office. And that's all from their um their upper bounds of uh losses. So yeah, it's it, it it's bad when it comes to these movies. So this isn't this can't have been the biggest of all time. Maybe it's the biggest opening bomb. Like uh, the film was a box office bomb, having the worst wide opening. Okay, there we go. That's that explains it more. Um, let me see what that. Let me see what the other worst opening weekends. Playmobil was the last one. But that only earned 668. No. Um, so why is it saying that... Uh, why is it saying this is the new one when Playmobil didn't even get a million dollars? Like this... I'm looking at the box office for uh, Rhythm Section. It got two million dollars this weekend. So it's nowhere near as bad as um, Playmobil was. I don't know. Maybe they're not trying to count 
Playmobil. Let's take a look at Box Office Mojo's worst uh, wide openings. Um, actually, no. Still number one is The Oogie Loves. Yeah, I don't know who, who, uh, who at Wikipedia Central is trying to make it look like uh, this was one of the worst openings of all time. Yeah, $2.8 million opening. This this performed better than the first friend request. And uh, Rock the Casbah? From, from whenever that was? Gem, the Gem and the Holograms movie? And, oh, uh, uh, well, yeah, the Rock the Casbah was that really weird uh, Bill Murray movie. Uh, where it goes on a music tour of Afghanistan or something, uh, 2015. Um, yeah, right behind Oogie Loves is Delgo. Yeah, that, so yeah, this was bad, but it's not Adventures of Pluto Nash bad. It's not Max Steel bad. It's not Major League Back to the Miners bad. Yeah, this is nothing. This 2.8 million is nothing. Um... Although it did do worse than Arctic Dogs, which was which said to have one of the worst openings of all time too, but I think they're just um, they're just hyperbolizing at this point because yeah, the, the record holder is still Oogie Loves, who couldn't even gr- break five hundred thousand dollars. Anyway, speaking of the box office, the rhythm section came in at two point eight million dollars. They uh, cost fifty million dollars to make, so this is. Um, so with, with the marketing, if you double that, it's, it's a $97 million loss. Uh, at, 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 you know, if, then that's good estimate and that's a, you know, a, a conservative estimation. So yeah, um, not a good release for this movie. Uh, and I think it also had to do with the fact that we're dealing with the Super Bowl weekend. This has never been a good weekend for movies. Uh, but yeah, that's a really bad opening. Um. But yeah, dropping from eight to nine is Little Women, brought in three million dollars, making its domestic gross ninety-eight point seven million so far, and worldwide uh, one hundred sixty-two point eight million dollars. Still hanging in there. Dropping from six to eight is The Turning, which brought in three million dollars this weekend and bringing its domestic gross up to eleven point seven million dollars and worldwide fourteen million dollars. And with I believe like a ten million dollar budget um actually let's take a look on wikipedia because for some reason box office mojo is not listing its uh budget 14 million dollars so it's already made back its money um uh uh, production wise we'll see if it hangs in there long enough to move on to uh you know make any success staying at number seven is rise of skywalker which brought in 3.1 million dollars this weekend bringing its domestic gross up to 507, 550 million international, 1 billion dollars, 1 billion 58 million dollars worldwide so far. So yeah, it's still Star Wars still brings in the money. Dropping from 5 to 6 is Jumanji the next level, bringing in 6 million dollars this weekend, bringing its domestic gross up to 291 million dollars, uh uh 463 million international, uh 754 million dollars, so Jumanji still. <laughs> who would have thought in the in the new millennium we would have had a, a successful Jumanji franchise in theaters? Crazy. Uh, dropping from four to five is The Gentleman, uh, the new Guy Ritchie movie, which brought in six million dollars this weekend, brought in twenty million domestically, twenty eight million internationally, forty eight point four million dollars worldwide. Uh, Why is it not listing the budget? 
Why does it not want to list the budget? Anyway, um, let's go back over to Wiki. Let's head over to the gentleman. Cost $22 million to make. So it's on the upwards to making a profit. So good for Guy Ritchie. Uh, next up. We've got premiering at number four is Gretel and Hansel, which brought in $6 million this weekend, bringing its, uh, with, with an extra 100000 from domestic, uh, from international uh, box offices. So $6.1 million uh, budget, I mean, uh, $6.1 million gross. How much did it cost? Five million. So yeah, made back its budget opening weekend, and if people go come back to see it, expect it to do even better. So this might be a good success for uh, Orion Pictures uh, and MGM, but we'll see. Uh, staying at number three is Doolittle with seven point seven million dollars, fifty five million dollars domestically, seventy one internationally, one hundred twenty. You want to talk about a bomb? Yep. Doolittle is a bigger bomb than the rhythm section. Like, the rhythm section, yeah, they lost $97 million, but it's nowhere near the loss that uh, Doolittle is facing. Or Cats. God, Cats. You want to talk about a big bomb. Uh, cats did worse than uh, the rhythm section did. Uh, 1917 brought in $9.6 million, 119 domestic, $129 million international, $249 million worldwide so far. So, yeah, good for uh, Sam Mendes. Got a big hit on his hands. Uh, Bad Boys staying at number one, $17.6 million. This is the, this is, you, you would not expect a 10 year in the making sequel to be this good, you know, in, in terms of the box office. Um, although uh, Incredibles 2 did, uh, did well enough as, as well. Um, anyway, $148 million domestically, $142 internationally, $290 million worldwide. Budget of $90 million, so that's already making a profit. So expect more from the Bad Boys franchise, either like the Sons of Bad Boys or Bad Boys Jr. or whatever you want to call it, or that new thing that they're trying to spin off with um, that uh, team of uh, police officers that are work, they work in like secret or whatever. So they're going to try to milk this franchise even more, I guarantee it. Anyway, that's the box office for this weekend. Let's take a look at what's coming out. The big release this coming week is Birds of Prey, which I uh, which I was originally assuming was coming out on the on uh, Valentine's Day, and I learned it came it's coming out a week early, and I had to get my tickets before we got sold out because it's already selling out. Uh, we've got uh, Christina Hodson writing. She is best known for uh, the Bumblebee movie, uh, that movie Shut In, which. Oh, and unforgettable, but we can't hold that against her. Uh, apparently, she's also slated. She's also attached to the Flash and Batgirl, so she had a rough start. Came back well enough with uh, Bumblebee, and we'll see how Birds of Pre how good Birds of Prey is. I'm guessing those Flash and uh, Batgirl, um, uh, as, you know, as, you know, announcements are gonna cater on whether or not this even does well. And then director is Kathy Yan, Yan, Y A N, Yan, Yan. Not sure. Uh, she is best known for According to My Mother and Dead Pigs. Is she Chinese director? Producer, director. Uh, the movie she did, she's only done one other movie, Dead Pigs. It is from China, She's so she's Chinese. 
director, uh, bumbling pig farmer, a feisty salon owner, sensitive busboy, an expat architect, and a disenchanted rich girl converge and collide as thousands of dead pigs float down the river towards a rapidly modernizing Shanghai. Fantastic! I love it! <laughs> I dig that premise. Uh, so this is going to be her first Hollywood movie. Let's see if her style translates uh, to English and to big-budget Hollywood movies. She may just be a director for hire, for all we know. But yeah, I'm interested to see if we got two... You know, people who are testing the waters. And, of course, they shortened the title from the infantabulous, they removed the empty fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn. Because, <laughs> yeah, this is a Harley Quinn movie. And people, you know, you got comic book nerds complaining that this should have been like a, a Gotham City Sirens or something more specifically catered to Harley. This isn't really Birds of Prey. But, I don't know. We'll see. I'm very excited. Margot Robbie uh, seems to be having fun. I like Mary with Elizabeth Winstead and... Um, we got uh, Rosie Perez as Renee Montoya. We've got Ewan McGregor as uh, as the uh, Black Mask. We've got uh, Victor Zaz is in this. Um, we got Black Canary in this. We've got a whole. We got Cassandra Cain in this. Not this. If you've been, if you know anything about Cassandra Cain, don't expect comic book Cassandra Cain in this. It's, it's something different, very much from what I can tell. But yeah, Huntress. Uh, 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 Black Canary, Renee Montoya, Cassandra Kane, Harley Quinn, all facing off against Black Mask and Zazz. I'm into this. I dig this. I like this. I'm, I'm interested to see what happens. And then the other big release this weekend, to try and compare with that, is The Lodge. Another horror movie. You're not welcome here. Uh, let me, let me see the whole, let me see the whole, yeah. Um, ooh, it's from Hammer Horror. I was wondering, that's what I was looking for, uh, who, the producer, who the studio is behind it. This is a Hammer horror film, because Hammer's still hanging in there now, after they've rebooted. Um, you've got Victor, Richard Armitage is in this, Alicia Silverstone, and one of my favorite up-and-comers, Riley Coe, um, who, is, who was in um, uh, Split as the blonde girl. She was one of the wives in Mad Max. She was in American Honey and Logan Lucky, It Comes at Night. So she's, you know, you you may not know her by name, but you've seen her in a bunch of stuff. And she was like on the girlfriend experience as well. So yeah, she I'm very curious to see how this does. I'm sorry, she is the daughter of Lisa Marie Presley and Danny Coe. Well then. <laughs> Once again, nepotism that you didn't even see coming. <laughs> Uh, anyway, she's good enough that I didn't even need, like, I'm just learning that now. She proved herself to me before I even, um, before I even knew she was the granddaughter of Elvis. Um, anyway, uh, we've got directors Severin Fiala and Veronica Franz, who are, um, are known, they did something called Goodnight Mommy, which I'm not aware of. Goodnight Mommy is from the U.S. Um, nope, it is German. Ich se, ich se. It's something, it's something. My German's bad. Um, yeah, Schwartz, Lucas Schwartz, Elias Schwartz, Suzanne Wust. So it's a German horror movie. So it looks like um, they're a German directing team, maybe? They're writers. Um the Field Guide to Evil, Die Trude. Uh, they did a segment on that. Um, so yeah, it looks like they're a um, writing, directing team. Okay, Austria. They're Austrian. Um, are they related? Uh, 
does not say how they're related. Uh, I'll pull up the wiki for that. But uh, we got a so we've got an Austrian um, directing team and their writing as well, um, with extra writing credit to Sergio Kashi, uh, best known for The Caller, American Cousins. Weird, weird name name to attach to it. Um, but yeah, uh, it. It looks like this. It's mainly this new coming, new up and coming uh, Austrian duo. So, Veronica Franz, but uh, Richard Armitage is in it. Uh, Alicia Silverstone, Riley Coe, and let me see. Da, 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 da. Veronica Franz Wikipedia. Here we go. Oh, good. It's the it's Deutsch Deutsche uh, Wikipedia. Um, not to, uh, anyway, I'll translate this and I'll f- go find the translation for this and look up the um, the premise for the lodge here. So, premise for the lodge. Damn it. There we go. A soon-to-be stepmom is snowed in with her fiancé's two children at a remote... Ho- okay, wait, I think I've seen the... I think I've seen this trailer uh, before. I think I saw it before um, The Grudge or something like that. Um, just as relations begin to thaw between the trio, some strange and frightening events start to take place. So yeah, it's like this, um, it's kind of going for that shining feel where it's like they're snowed in and they have to, and so you've got this um, this the, this family trying to, um, you know, get to know each other better and so they're not at you know they're not angry or hateful towards each other and then all of a sudden the horror starts happening so you don't know which way they're gonna go um okay uh something about peter documenting about peter kern whoever that is awards partner older seidel she has been working together since an exhibition. Film critic. Started out as a film critic. Um, so she has no relation to Severin Fiala. Looks like they're just writing and directing partners. Um, no mention of any sort of actual relationship between the two besides that. Anyway, uh, this looks interesting. Uh, I'm down for a creepy horror movie. And if, uh, you know, either this is going to suck it and I'm going to have fun. Or it's going to be interesting or and I'll enjoy it. Or it could just as easily go be boring and uninteresting and I hate it. We'll see. Uh, but that's what's coming up this week. And that about does it for this week's episode. Which means it is time for the plugs. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, you can do so by whitelisting us on your ad blocker and favoriting us on your web browser. You can also check out all of our other fine programming, Dungeons & Dragon Types just premiered. It's all set for you to check out there. We've also got the latest episode of Living in the Stacks. And uh, Donna's all, all her cool stuff with the Snarkast, uh, Once More We're Feeling, Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, uh, The Family Business, all that good stuff is available. And if you yourself are a podcaster and you would like to join Join our fledgling little network. Uh, send us any inquiries to gumbycatnetworks at gmail.com and we'll see if you're a good fit. Uh, you can also check out us out on the go with your various podcast providers. We're on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, uh, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, uh, Spreaker, Spotify, all of that good stuff. If we're not on your podcast provider, let us know so we can add our feed to yours. And then um, 
If you if you want to give us a five-star rating and review, let people know that you like the show and that they should check it out as well. You can also ch- check us out on social media, facebook.com slash popcornjunkie, Twitter at cornjunkiepod, um, Instagram, popcornjunkiepodcast, not as active on there. Uh, I am also on uh, Letterboxd. That's probably where I'm most active. It's where I'm writing all the um, written reviews for the show. And uh, you can also, so you can check out my long-form thoughts uh, there and uh, get a preview of what I'm going to say on the upcoming episode. You can also uh, follow me on Stardust. I'm almost caught up. I'm getting there. I just caught up to um, uh, Cats. <laughs> so I'm that far, So I'm like halfway through December already. So I'm almost caught up to uh, to the present. But yeah, it's, it's, it's Popcorn Junkie over on Stardust. And if you want to support the show, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com slash popcornjunkie. Uh, you can find 10 episodes each of uh, Munch Along um, and Make It Better Movies. If you want those to come back, uh, donate as little as $1 an episode, and you can have those start coming back to the Patreon private feed. And if you want to suggest anything else to um, do with the with the show, you can do so by becoming a patron over there at patreon.com slash popcornjunkie. And, and even as little as like $1 a month, you can suggest movies for me to review outside of theaters and what's on uh, streaming and whatnot. So I would love to do a Patreon corner uh, for episodes. Um, yeah, patreon.com uh, slash popcornjunkie. And that's no tier system, pay as little as a dollar a month. Every little bit helps. And if there's anything else you want to say, any kind of feedback you want to give, any kind of thought you want to share on the movies that I reviewed, send all that to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to, want your thoughts to be read out on the mic, you can just have to let me know through either the, the message or the subject line that you give me explicit permission, and then I'll do so. Otherwise, I'll simply paraphrase. That does it for this week's episode. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and you'd think I'd get better at coming up with uh, endings for these episodes. But I don't. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio. N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviendart.com for more of his artwork. Same logo it was from the 80s. Uh, hold on, I'm getting a call. My mommy's calling. Be right back. Like a plunging V-neck. Uh, I am talking about witch titties. What do you want? Did you hear me talking about witch titties and you want to comment on it? You're not a fully black cat. You're mostly black. Then you're just going to sit there like a loaf. You're a butt. Maybe it's the first... I don't know where Wikipedia is trying to argue that the rhythm section is the worst of all time. I told you to stop. What do you want? What? You want to be on the mic? You want to be on the mic? Come here. Come here. You want to talk so much, let's put you on the mic. Come here. Come here.
Come here, you monkey. Come here. You wanna be on? You wanna talk so much? Let's have you on the mic. Yeah, now we got a kitty on the mic. What do you have to say to that, Mama? Got nothing to say now? You're all quiet now, aren't you? Yeah, there we go. Let's get you purring. Here's a kitty. Hey, do you like Pokemon? Yeah! Do you like Dungeons and Dragons? Yeah! Well, what if I told you, you could have them both together? That sounds, uh, copyright don't mention that. I mean, um, yeah. Then check out Dungeons and Dragon Types, the D&D 5th edition actual play podcast, where the players are Pokemon trainers, and all the battles are between Pokemon. There will be evil organizations to fight, Pokemon gyms, contests, all in a whole new fan-made region. Don't miss out on the fun. Listen to Dungeons and Dragon Types, available only on Gumby Cat Network.